Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. So today I'm speaking with Sarah Merrick, who's the founder and CEO of Ripple, an innovative clean energy ownership platform. Sarah set up Ripple to enable household consumers to own their own source of clean power and transform the ownership of the UK's energy assets. And what they do is enable people to part own wind farms and solar parks so that you can have clean, low cost electricity that is produced by those wind farms and solar parks supplied to their own homes, which is absolutely genius. Sarah's goal is for half the homes in the markets that they operate in to own their own source of clean energy by 2050, and I'm sure she's going to get there. Sarah's worked in the wind energy sector for 19 years, and prior to setting up Ripple, she was the head of public affairs for Vestas, the world's largest wind turbine manufacturer. Prior to that, as an economist in the global strategy team at RES, the wind farm developer, and alongside her role at Vestas, she was also vice chair of Renewable UK, the UK's trade body for wind and marine energy. So she certainly knows what she's talking about when it comes to wind energy. In 2019, Sarah secured £856,000 of investment for the growth of her business through crowdfunding on a pre-money valuation of £2.5 million. And Ripple was awarded Startup of the Year by Cedars Investors and by Business Green. So some incredible accolades. This really is a wonderful business. Sarah is a super smart entrepreneur, and I'm sure you'll all be looking forward to hearing her fundraising story. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. So we were just talking about all your fabulous experience in the in the energy industry. So you obviously know what you're talking about when it comes to clean energy and wind farms. But how did you come up with the whole idea for the business in the first place? So in my role at Vestas, we were, you know, part of my role was sort of speaking to politicians. Uh, and so I was telling politicians that wind had now become the UK's cheapest source of power. Um, and also that actually you know aside from sort of people um not liking it it's actually one of the most popular forms of electricity in the uk as well and the industry was wondering what it can do in a sort of post-subsidy environment because subsidies were being phased out um and people sort of were looking at okay we'll sell our electricity to google and facebook and amazon it's like right there's one of those um that's not going to be this complete solution and so i thought actually it's not right that me as an individual, I can't access myself what is now the UK's cheapest source of electricity, only the big guys like Amazon and Google can. So I set up Ripple to enable individual households like me um, to be able to own their own source of clean power um, and get direct access to the UK's cheapest source of electricity, which was large scale onshore wind and large scale solar as well. Amazing. So this whole, so you were kind of working at Vestas when you had the idea. So at what point did you take this leap out of the corporate world to, to working in your startup? Did you kind of do it in tandem or did you just kind of 
quit the job and go for it. What was your strategy? So I set up Ripple in January 2017 and I sort of, I was doing as much as I could, you know, like at the weekends and in the evenings and stuff. Um, and then I, I, could, I could do sort of so much within my contract given sort of confidentiality and um, other clauses. So I sort of said to them, can I work part-time to do it, um, to sort of work on it a bit more and get out of these different bits of my contract? And they thought about it and they, they sort of said, no, basically. And so I said, I said then I had to, um, uh, you know, I, I'd said, you know, it, it's either I can either do it or, or, you know, this is definitely what I want to do. So, um, so then I handed my notice in, in, I think, April 2017, um, had... Uh, the summer off, spent loads of time with the kids because I knew it was going to be crazy once we sort of got onto it full time. And then I started working full time on it in September 2017. So that's what two and a bit years ago. But but yeah, I mean, I knew from January 2017, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, it, it was just about you know whether I could sort of maintain the the day job for a little bit longer. Um, but uh, but but yeah, no, I'm the sort of the decision point was January 2017 when I set the when I set the company up and then after that there was sort of no going back that was definitely what I wanted to do and I just haven't looked back <laughs> since really. And what, do you, what was it out of interest that was the real driver for that? Is it, was it for you about having your own your own company or was it that you just felt absolutely compelled to solve the problem or did you want to have a different work-life balance? What was kind of really pulling you towards um, doing that? Yeah, I, I thought it had to happen and it should happen. And, you know, where I was sort of right in the centre of the industry, speaking to, you know, everyone on the cutting edge of the sector, no one was doing it. So it was a bit of, like, nobody else is doing it. I'll just play doing myself then sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, so it was just because nobody else was doing it. And it just seemed like something that consumers should be able to do and it wasn't really in anyone's interest to to make it happen so you know suppliers electricity suppliers wouldn't necessarily want it to happen developers weren't necessarily in the position for it to happen so you sort of needed to have a brand new company with a new perspective making it happen so yeah I set up Ripple to to do just that really Mm, properly properly shaking up a an industry very dominated by big players yeah exactly so early days um, I'm imagining you put your own savings into the business and, and, but also I know you had some funding from friends and family. So tell us about that. How did that come about? How did you feel going to friends and family to ask them to back you? So I think they, they, they all love, whenever I tell anyone about Ripple and what the concept is, they just love it. Um, so yeah, sort of getting family on board was very straightforward. There was a woman who, um, I've known all through my career. Um, I've been talking to her about it a lot. She she invested, um, and it, it wasn't a hard it, it wasn't a hard sell at all. People wanted to to get involved, um, so that side of it was actually very very straightforward. And people just wanted, yeah, they really really wanted to to be involved and be part of something that was just so new. And I think they did have confidence in me that I could. I could deliver it as well, which was fantastic. So yeah. yeah. So those two things. I mean, it's, it's right. It's one of those ideas when you kind of hear about it, you think that's brilliant. But an idea on its own isn't enough. It has to be executed by an amazing entrepreneur, which you, which you clearly are. So good. You instilled that confidence. <laughs> um, and so how how far did that get you in terms of that funding? How along along your journey? 
So that got us to, that was, I think we did that raise in, I think, April 2018. Um, and then that got us to sort of like the end of 2018, really. Um, so by that point, we had an angel investor on board and he was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so he, he was able to come January 2019. He was able to sort of... Um, loan us some money just in advance of his um, his, his investment, really. Um, but yeah, that crowdfunding, not the crowdfunding, the uh, friends and family got us to yeah, the end of 2018, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at that point, you sort of work, still working up the idea, you still hadn't, you still hadn't launched the business, had you? No, 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 no. So, so it was just, there, there, there were three of us on board at that point. Um, one guy working on wind farm projects, just finding the best projects available, another guy working on the tech side. Um, and then me sort of covering everything else, really. Okay. So to get your first wind farm project off the paper into reality, is that something that needs quite a bit of capital investment? What did you really need to to put funding so, in? So in terms of actually building the wind farm, that would be what our customers put in. Um, but, but in terms of us preparing to be able to get to the point at which customers can put money into um, a wind farm, yeah, there's a lot of legal work. Um, so we've got, we, we've had to sort of develop our own whole legal framework to make it happen. So that's sort of a contract between us and the electricity supply partners, us and the wind farm, us and the cooperative, um, and various contracts between the different um, parties. Um, obviously that costs money to get all those contracts drawn up. Um, we had to get a cooperative set up. So there was more cost involved in sort of, um, you know, engaging with the financial conduct authority to make sure um, uh, they were happy with the, happy with the structure. Um, we've had a, a bit of marketing costs and then there's also sort of due diligence costs as well in terms of, you know, we have to um, make sure that the, when we launch a wind farm that, you know, we're, we're, we're confident that it is a good project. Um, and yeah, the, 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 those are the main costs, basically, sort of legal, marketing, and then due diligence, as well as obviously salaries as well. Yeah. Okay. So you got to a point where you thought, actually, we need to raise some more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I know that first of all, you started having a chat with some venture capital firms. So tell us how those conversations went. I think um, I think we were just too early. I think being pre-revenue was. Um, a challenge for quite a few of them. I think it was the combination of being pre-revenue and a totally new concept um, was just a bit much. Um, so, you know, and even at that point, we only had a couple of hundred people, customers sort of pre-registered. So it was all very, very new and unproven. Um, so, yeah, we, we had um, probably spent, I don't know, five, six months sort of engaging with, with VCs probably looking back a bit, bit too long. Um, and so we made the decision um, beginning of, what would it be, 2019, that actually crowdfunding was going to be a much better way of um, securing the investment. Yeah. And so we started then um, just working towards the crowdfunding race. Okay, interesting. So let's talk about crowdfunding a little bit. So um, one of the first decisions you have to make with crowdfunding is deciding which platform to raise on was that a difficult decision for you and tell us about how you made the decision no it wasn't particularly difficult so so we looked at a few different I was only 
the two main platforms really. Um, and the team at Cedars were just really responsive, really helpful and talked us through the process really well. So we were, so we decided to, to go with them. There wasn't a huge amount, um, you know, we sort of obviously compared them on various different metrics and they were not massively different on, on quite a few. So, um, so, so yeah, so, so, so we ended up um, choosing Cedars primarily because they were really, really responsive to, um, yeah, to our yeah. questions and they wanted to engage, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's important, isn't it? Because it's quite, a, it, I mean, it's a serious thing doing a crowdfund, isn't it? There's a lot involved. So you want to make sure that the team you're working with are supportive, are going to help you, um, all of that stuff. So to look, that's a really, really important thing to look out for. And also, um, I know one of the things that people talk about with crowdfunding is about a nominee structure. Was that something that you looked at? So this, this nominee structure where when you do crowdfunding, instead of having two, 300, 400 investors that all sit on your cap table, you actually just get the crowdfunding platform as the, the investor on your platform. Was that, a, was that a factor for you at all? Yeah, I mean, it just made it so much simpler just having um, them, you know, it's a bit like what Ripple does. We are the interface between thousands of customers and, and the wind farm. Cedars is that interface between our um, thousands of investors, isn't it? Well, thousands of investors. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a lot, um, a lot easier. Then. Okay. So this challenge of kind of getting investors on board when you're pre-launch, pre-revenue, what, what kind of information did you feel that investors needed to see to get that confidence that this was a business that was going to work, that it was going to be a business that would have um, product to market fit and a business that could scale? I think, um, I think it was getting the key concepts out there and getting people to understand that this is something that is possible um, and and I think sort of going back to the sort of VC versus crowdfunding I think crowdfunding investors saw it through their consumer eyes rather than their investor eyes whereas lots of VCs were sort of focused on you know what's a customer's IRR and and it's like well, customers aren't that hung up on what their return on investment is there there is a it's, it's a good return but but you know in terms of um, they, they were definitely seeing um, Ripple as a, they, they, they were sort of assessing, assessing the sort of customer proposition in the same way that they would assess an investment proposition as a VC. And actually, um, customers don't do that. And all, all, of our, um, all of our research found that actually customers' main driver beyond you know, by a significant margin is they want to act on climate change mm. getting a saving on their electricity bill or making a return on their investment is a second order um priority for them but vcs really really focused on what what, what is their rate of return whereas crowdfunding investors were able to um just see that it's a fantastic product and something that really fits with their with their values and something that they would personally want to do um so yeah, so, so, so it meant that they could then, um, I think it really chimed with them, just getting that core concept out and that this is something that they would want to do as a, as a consumer. Um, I think that was really the most important thing. And then being able to answer, because we were so new, being able to answer people's, um, obviously people had loads and loads of questions. It wasn't something, you know, it wasn't another whatever, online retailer of a specific um, 
product it was it was so new so so we we did spend a lot of time answering people's questions and we took a very deliberate decision early on that we were going to answer those questions really really comprehensively um so yeah we, we i mean we set out obviously what the concept was what the sort of revenues were who are we couldn't obviously name who our supply partners were or anyone that we were sort of talking to um but i think by providing those sorts of comprehensive answers it gave people um yeah, just more confidence that we knew what we were talking about really it's interesting that distinction you made between vcs and crowdfunding that it's that kind of head versus heart thing isn't it and, and vcs are very very focused on metrics which is why it the, one of the factors that, that they tend to come in a bit later when a business has proved those metrics but when you're going on a kind of heart-based decision that gut feel um it's, it, it's a, a, an easier one i think with crowdfunding as you've identified so the, the q as I think just just because people see that it's them as an individual, they would want to do it. Um, it does make such a huge difference, basically, to um, to how people act. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the Q the Q and A thing is interesting on crowdfunding, isn't it? Because when you're raising investment from angel investors or from venture capital companies, you're often dealing with quite difficult questions face to face, really put on the spot. But with crowdfunding, you do. It's all done online, so there's a bit more time for you to really put together very thorough and considered answers. Isn't that, isn't that the case? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were some, um, you know, some more established companies were, you know, obviously you can read what what they're how they're responding to, to their questions, and some were just saying we're not going to answer that. That's commercially sensitive. Um, you know, we knew that in our position being so new, we couldn't just say oh we're not going to answer it. So. Um, uh, yeah, so so we did. We answered everything very, very thoroughly, um, and but also quickly. So the whole team, well, three of us, would um, you know we, we we would go through what the questions were, and then we would allocate. Okay, this is best for somebody to answer. Um, and I think pretty much every single question was answered within twenty four hours of it going on the platform. Most of them significantly sooner than that. Yeah, mm-hmm. because people want to be able to see what the answers are, they can obviously see there's a question there and, you know, and you would get threads of, you know, more investors sort of chipping in with, oh, but what about this and what about that? And it, it was just a really good way to be able to elaborate on, um, you know, the sorts of uh, information. We obviously had our pitch video and you have your sort of pitch content as well. Um, but it was just a really good way to explain in a bit more depth and sort of, you know, really drill into, okay, this is what people want to know more about. And um, so we could take our signals from, from our potential investors to say, okay, this is something that they want more information about so we can give them specific information on that one, one issue. Hmm. And actually the more questions you get, I think that the more there's a sign that people are interested. I'm always concerned when, when there's yeah. like tumbleweeds <laughs> on a Q and A Yeah. People just aren't that interested. Um, hmm. Okay. So lots, lots of questions on there. And, but did you ever worry with all of that? Did you, did you think, gosh, if I put this information out in the public domain, Who's going to get their hands on this information? This is such a new and exciting idea. Will somebody else steal it? The reason I ask that question is a lot of entrepreneurs that I deal with are really, really worried about crowdfunding because they, they don't want this information, this sensitive information, getting out there. What was your view on that? Yeah, we were concerned about it. Um, I think, again, because it's such a new concepts uh I, I can't remember if it was in the lean startup where it says you know you 
try and tell your main competitor, this is my idea, go and do it. And they're so busy doing their own thing. They are not going to be, be, be doing that. And we didn't have any really obvious direct competitors because we were so, so new, you know, our competitors would be, um, the most obvious ones would be sort of green electricity suppliers. Um, the model wouldn't really work if they tried to do it themselves. Um, and, um, and sort of rooftop solar providers, but, but again, it wasn't really something that they would necessarily be able to, to do themselves. So yeah, we, we, we were sort of, we were concerned about it, um, but but also we weren't particularly in a position to, um, you know, we, we we weren't necessarily in a position to just say no, we're not going to answer that question. And so actually, you know, the the, the, the benefits of being able to answer questions um, comprehensive. I mean, we we were obviously we we there were certain things that we didn't say. You know, we had a lot of stuff that would be covered by NDAs that we just clearly weren't weren't able to to say um, and. You know, like, so which suppliers were we talking to was a big question that kept coming up and we just can't answer that question um, because it's all covered by day. So, um, so yeah, I mean, really, really commercially sensitive stuff. We obviously um, didn't and couldn't um, uh, share, but, but, but in terms of the sort of comprehensiveness of the um, answers, it, you know, we would obviously leave the gap where there was a gap that needed to, to be left because it was um, confidential. But in terms of, you know, being able to elaborate in quite a lot of detail, I think it did, the, 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 the benefits sort of far outweighed, outweighed the risks, really. Mm. I think that's interesting for people to think about. And so what, in terms of the balance of the number of investors that came in, how many, did you, how many investors did you get in the end on that campaign? Do you remember? About 1,080, which wow. um, was, for, for a company with, you know, no track record and, you know, very, very few pre-registered customers when we started. It was amazing. I think it put, at the time, it put us in like the top 5% for investor numbers mm-hmm. um, of any campaign on on Cedar's website. So we were really, really pleased. It just really struck a chord with, with investors and they just loved it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what an incredible validation of your idea, really. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine actually with the fact that you had so many invest, investors on your campaign that you had quite a lot of, smaller investors which is always quite nice did they did they mostly come from your network or where did you how did you reach those investors how did you communicate with them yeah we were surprised at how few came from our sort of um well not how few but how many didn't come from our network essentially um uh we were sort of expecting it to be far more you know, sort of continuation of friends and family, essentially, but the vast majority, um, we didn't know. And so the fact that they were, <laughs> sort of, it was genuinely crowdfunding and not necessarily our crowd. Obviously, we did have, you know, our, our friends and family and sort of, you know, network did, did invest. Um, but the number of people outside of our network was just phenomenal, really, really phenomenal. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's just great that there are people, you know, some, some were customers and they who might have already pre-registered, they'd have heard of, about Ripple on Twitter and stuff. But um, there were just loads of people who we had no connection to at all. And I think that's part of the benefit of um, crowdfunding platforms like Cedars because they already have a lot of um, existing investors. And obviously all those existing investors 
you know, they get to see what, what's being launched on the platform at all times. And so if, you know, you just get access to, to such a huge, um, huge number of, of investors, it was, yeah, quite amazing. I think it's quite rare, I mean, your, your case, I think, and no wonder you've won so many awards, <laughs> because most people do find that it's usually 80% or something like that of their own network that come in on a crowdfunding campaign and the rest. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you've definitely bucked the trend there. And I think that, I imagine that your proposed your business really resonates with investors on on lots of different levels, and that's why. And um, I think it, it didn't hurt that um, over the course. So we we did the crowdfunding sort of April to June. Um, you know, during that time, you had the David Attenborough documentary on the BBC. You had Extinction Rebellion. You had Greta Thunberg. It, you know, climate change was really really in the news at the time. Um, and, and, and obviously since then, you know, there has been a real step change, you know, as somebody that's worked in the wind industry for 19 years, mm. things are different. In the last 12 months, things have changed. And we were sort of right at the start of that real changing gear in terms of how individuals viewed climate change and that it wasn't like, you know, if there was going to be a solution, it was how, which solution will it be? But there will be a solution and there will be action. And so it was about sort of, um, you know, Ripple was able to sort of show, okay, this this is one of the solutions that there will be. And we sort of fitted into um, the sort of public narrative mm. quite well at the time. Right, right, and then right. that's sort of carried on. So riding the wave, which is, and sometimes you, I mean, sometimes that's something you just can't predict. And you know, if you'd have run that campaign a year ago, you probably would have had a, a very, very different outcome. But the timing of it was really perfect. I, I think it was, the, it was. It was a huge shift in: is there going to be climate action? To what climate action is there going to be? And it just, you know, from a sort of broader, you know, not just our campaign perspective, that's a really important um, step for the whole of society to have. Um, to have taken um and but, but we were able to just you know present ourselves as one of the solutions that there will be to, to climate change and people really got that yeah i mean it's one of my favorite questions for, for entrepreneurs to address when they're putting a pitch together is why now um because lots of people have great ideas but if you can answer the why now question it makes it so much more compelling and you clearly did that and it's, and it's been quite interesting sort of you know we've started a second um round now and we haven't had a single question about you know what what is a customer's irr because when we say customers want to act on climate change you know 18 months later people totally get that and, and there isn't the sort of quibbling about you know what percentage is okay and what what, what isn't it's just people just people and obviously investors they get that people are desperate to act on climate change and they want a solution that works within their lifestyles and it won't mean you know, giving up X, Y, and Z. It's, um, so yeah, think things have, there's been a fundamental shift in how everyone views climate solutions. And um, yeah, I think the, the timing for us has worked really well. Yeah. And, it, and it means all that money you raise, instead of having to invest in the education of the market, you can put that, that money into marketing, you know, preaching to the converted rather than knocking on closed doors which is which is which investors are going to love um and you know for you i mean i think we, we you know we've talked about how um about female 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 entrepreneurs and kind of what's been going on with women raising investment obviously still 
sadly only around two percent of, of funds go to women but more and more women like you are, are being super successful but quite rare i think to to see female founders building a business like yours um in a non-traditional female sector if that's the right way to put it without sort of being to alienate anyone did you how did you find it as a as a female founder raising investment did you come across any bias at all conscious or unconscious or did you not see not massively at all actually I, was, I think I was expecting more that you know there, there was one meeting with an investor which was you know he was very patronizing and I, I'd sort of assume part of his attitude was because I was a woman um but that was the exception all the other meetings that I had were um uh yeah very good um and but 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 I think on you know, I think crowdfunding does work quite well for women, I think, because you haven't got, you know, you can sort of engage with people far more, far more directly. But, but yeah, I personally didn't have any, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't feel like I sort of was, was facing any barriers, but then it's very, you know, when, when I first learned that statistic about the 2%, it really took me back and I sort of had to apologise to the team for being like a sort of female founder. Um, but um but 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 yeah there's nothing particularly that i could sort of point to at all um which is great but then obviously that two percent stat is there um you know there must be reasons for that um being there which isn't that these are terrible businesses it, it, it so, so 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 yeah so so there, there, there's nothing obvious that, that i can sort of point to that would be yes, that 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 was um any difficulty that i faced at all it was do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to know kind of in the energy industry which you've got you know where you've been all your all your working life really whether is that do you does that is that a very sort of male industry or is it is it quite balanced the reason I ask that question is I, I find that female founders who come from an industry where it is quite male dominated tend to find it much easier going out and talking to investors because they're used to speaking that sort of language whereas women who've come from a very female dominated in, industries struggle more when it comes to speaking the language of investors? I think the, the energy industry as a whole is very male dominated. Um, the renewables sector as a subset of that has a lot more women in it. So I think I've been, you know, I've been very, very used to being part of that very male dominated energy sector, but being, um, you know, and, and being used to, um, you know, renewables for a long time have been the sort of, um, you know, they've been seen as a niche part of the industry. And I've, you know, my, my whole career has been, um, you know, getting, being part of that sort of what, what, what was considered a niche in the last few years. It's totally not a niche thing anymore, you know, and renewables are, you know, supplying 10 times as much electricity as the coal sector is. So, you know, o over the last few years, renewables themselves have come into the mainstream. So, um so yeah, I mean, I've not grown up, but I mean, all, all my career I've had, you know, been very, very used to um, dealing in a very, very male-dominated, um, male-dominated market, and just, you know, having to hold my own in those sorts of conversations, yeah. but more holding my own as somebody that works in, you know, what was seen as a sort of, you know, kooky wind sector rather than, you know, necessarily sort of being a woman. Um, but but yeah, it's just. Um, yeah, it's just something that I've got used to, um, and yeah, it, it, I mean, it doesn't phase me at yeah. all. You know, having 
being in that sort of um yeah being being in that sort of dynamic really mm, that's interesting so that confidence you've built up over the years obviously has stood you in great stead yeah and it's, you know and a lot of it is people that from that quite conventional um you know the experts who have been in the wind or not the electricity sector for you know decades saying that wind couldn't ever do what it's just proven to do over the last 10 years and then ultimately being wrong you know it, it it does give you fantastic confidence to just yeah to to, to, to have been around when when these things have yeah. been it can't possibly happen to so, oh look it it just has um and we've proved you all wrong um it's a fantastic backdrop to then you know being in a position of having to to raise investment mm, fantastic so you mentioned that you're doing an, another round now tell us more about that yeah, so we are, uh, we're raising a second round to drive our growth, essentially. So, so we're about to launch our first project. So once, once that's launched, um, well, then the concept will be proven. There'll be customers signed up having paid their um, money and owning a bit of the, the wind farm. Um, so then we just want to repeat that over and over again with more and more projects, um, more and more projects on the platform, more and more customers, um, and then moving into more and more markets very quickly um so we're raising investment to to enable us to to do just that okay and will that be a, were you raising the uk or would you would you consider raising investment abroad given that you want to expand internationally yeah so i've just got back from san francisco um at the end of january and met quite a few investors out there so yeah we're not particularly um yeah, we're not sort of excluding um, overseas investors at all. And certainly we've got a lot of interest from um, from VCs um, in the US. So so it'll just be, I mean, whether it's a combination or, or, or quite what, but, but but we're certainly not, um, you know, we're not saying, okay, you have to be a UK investor for, the, for, for this round. We're open to um, discussions with, um, with, with everyone, really. Hmm. Out of interest, having met those VCs in the States, and also, I know you've met lots of VCs here in the UK, perhaps at a slightly earlier point. Did you see a difference between the, the way they um, deal with risk and the kind of size of investments they want to put in? Did, was, that, was that something you noticed? I think they, um, and it, 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 it's a bit difficult to compare because, you know, Ripple as the company has moved on 18 months anyway. So, so you know, it is, it's far more de-risked. Um, company than it was 18 months ago and um, I think in general people are quite um, quite open to to new ideas in the US I think you know a, a one bit of advice I got for, from a VC um, was that US VCs in particular want to see ideas that can scale in the US so if you are in the UK that's great but they're likely to want you to be able to scale in the US as well as just the UK um, so yeah, that, that, that was a really handy bit of advice that I got while I was out there. Um, because, yeah, I think if you're, if you're a company that has got no plans at all to enter the US market, you would be probably a bit less attractive to, to a US VC than if you're one that is planning on getting into the US um, quite soon. Yeah, makes sense. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the very best on that round. Um, I'm sure you'll yeah. be successful. So before we finish up, have you got any kind of parting tips for all the, the female founders who are listening about 
um, you know, what you would have done differently or, or a couple of things that you think they should really be focusing on when they're, they're looking to raise investment? I think um, know what your mission is and um, be really clear about what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and, and also just think big. I think, you know, we sort of touched on it a bit before that lots of um, female led companies focus on traditional female sectors um, and, you know, people are potentially closing off a lot of um, the market with, you know, by, by, by focusing on those traditional sectors. So, um, yeah, just think big and go for big ideas that can um, really make a massive difference to, to everyone. Um, and, yeah, get out, out of your comfort zone and just get in there with the big ideas. Yeah, <laughs> probably my parting advice. Yeah, I mean, God, you, you know, I know you're really at the start of this journey in terms of rolling out the concept, but if you pull it off, the difference you're going to make to consumers and the planet is actually really quite phenomenal. So when you're sitting here in 20 years time, that's going to be, feel pretty amazing, right? Yeah, yeah no, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it can get huge. And that's sort of, it's a fantastic position to be in with something that could genuinely, um, yeah, go massive. So yeah, it's great. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Sarah. And, oh, uh, no worries. Um, if you haven't already signed up for Ripple, go and check out their website and look at how you can pre-register to be a part owner of a wind farm and have your own owned energy supply to your home because what could be more brilliant than that? Thank you so much, Sarah. We'll speak to you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.